First Jonah 1, 4 to 16, followed by Mark 4, 35 to 41. Some of this is going to be familiar because it is a repetition from, uh, repetition from earlier weeks in some respects, but it's good to be reminded some things bear repeating. I'll begin at verse 4. We remember, of course, that Jonah was on the run from the Lord's commission to him to speak hard words against Nineveh. Verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up! Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now. On whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And now we come to Mark 4, beginning at verse 35. Jesus had just spent the day teaching in parables. And at verse 35, we read that on that day, when evening came, he said to them, to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. 
Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Then they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you rule over all things for your own glory and that your purposes, the purposes of your eternal decree will not be thwarted by men or by nature. Thank you that your purposes are for our good, those whom you have called and chosen and are faithful in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we give you our thanks. Amen. Well, the last time we were together, we left our derelict prophet, Jonah, there on the pitching deck of the storm-tossed sea, a ship being thought to break up or about to break up. All souls on board that ship basically written off as lost to the briny deep. Certainly so you'd think. So Jonah must have thought, doomed to a watery grave for his sin, and yet suddenly, unexpectedly, for one quintessentially horrible moment, Jonah first finds himself the center of the whole world's attention. Every eye in heaven and on earth is turned that moment on Jonah, or so at least it must have felt to him. Just that suddenly, the anonymous sleeping sinner loses his anonymity. Just so suddenly and so thoroughly, so completely, we are exposed for what we are. So suddenly there is no place to hide. There is no more getting lost in a crowd. Eventually, beloved, eventually, and the circumstances and particulars may change, but eventually it turns out this way for every sinner. This happens to be the dark day it all catches up with Jonah. This is the day Jonah's sin finds him out. And we started to consider this chapter last week, first of all, in terms of the prophet's dereliction, fleeing as he does the divine prophetic calling to warn the great city, Nineveh. Then we considered, also last week, we considered the pursuing disaster as the Lord hurls that great 
wind on the sea for Jonah's sake and ultimately, of course, for the sake of Nineveh, the great city. Disasters like this, of course, can actually become the pivotal event in the lives, the pivotal event God uses to turn the adolescent believer and even the adolescent prophet from carefree disobedience to a more careful compliance with his revealed will. It can be that pivotal experience, hardship, like this can be. That is, if we have the sense to improve those times. If we have the sense, that is, to see these disasters for what they are, a heavenly summons to us back from self-will and disobedience to the straight way of obedience to the Lord. So we've seen those two things so far, the uh, derelict prophet and the pursuing disaster. Then thirdly, we intended last time to consider the ship and the souls aboard in terms of their purchased deliverance, if you remember that. And it's this third point we didn't get to last week as we left Jonah in the grip of that storm. So today we finally come to the purchased deliverance of the ship from its otherwise certain doom. But this principle of deliverance that is purchased, deliverance that comes at someone's cost, this applies well beyond the nautical horizons of sea and sky, doesn't it? We are not sailors here today, and the life that we live day after day, year after year, is not a life lived on the sea, which is okay because what we learn here applies in every case to the purchased deliverance of a foolish sinner from his sin. The purchased deliverance of a foolish married couple from divorce, a foolish family from breakup, a foolish company from bankruptcy, a foolish nation from economic and social and political ruin. This is how the living and true God Creator, provider, sustainer, redeemer. This is how he saves us from the impossible messes that we get ourselves in by our foolishness and sin. It's a very big matter, in other words. This is a very big matter. The cost of our sin and the purchase price of our deliverance. The whole gospel of substitutionary atonement hinges on our understanding this. This is the reason we couldn't simply cram it all in at the end the last time we were together. We couldn't have done justice to the fact that our deliverance from disaster, our rescue from ruin, is purchased for us. It's not a matter of sinners simply deciding in our heads at an intellectual level uh, to turn the wheel of our own self-regulated lives a few degrees port or starboard. We don't make that kind of changes in our lives. 
Because sometimes you get to a point in life where you can't change course. It's not possible anymore. It's out of your hands to change course. We make ourselves the helpless victims of the hurricane into the jaws of which we ourselves have sailed. And now it's not a matter of simply deciding to turn the ship around, return to the port of Joppa, and starting over when the weather's better. When we chart for ourselves a course of sin, chart for ourselves a course of reckless disobedience, we soon find ourselves and those with us in a situation that is beyond our power to control. We run out of options. We're unable to steer. We're unable to turn back. We're the mercy of the winds that are driving us along wherever they will. Every moment we harbor that stowaway sin, each wave that crashes over the bow threatens to take us down. Take us to the bottom. We may row desperately to return to the land, but the question quickly becomes, where is the land? We've lost our bearings, and the sea becomes increasingly stormy against us. That's often the way it is with sin. And we end up asking ourselves, how did we get ourselves in this situation? How did we get here? We got here, friends, fundamentally because God is holy. That is the inescapable fact that we have to deal with. God is holy and he will be obeyed. And the awful truth for us is that if he is not obeyed, someone's going to die. If he's not obeyed, someone's going to die. Unless there's a Savior, unless there's a Redeemer, deliverance from the storm comes only at the expense of the sinner's life. And perilous is every minute, every hour, every day, every year that we spend with sin, a welcome shipmate aboard our lives. Cast it overboard, because if you don't cast it overboard, you will perish with it. Now, as we've seen, as we see again and again in the scriptures, we sang about it in Psalm 107 last week. Uh, we read about it here in Jonah. We read about it in the Gospels. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth directs the wind and the waves. He does. He also, in this particular case, directs the failing hearts of pagan sailors in their extremity. He calls them, he directs them to conduct, of all things, a lottery. Can you imagine that? They may all perish, but they're going to perish demanding on whose account it is they're perishing. They want to find out who brought this on us. They may be pagans, but they're not so pagan as to believe in such a fantasy as chance occurrence. It's written in the proverb, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is 
from the Lord. This is something that even pagans, apparently, can grasp. The sovereign Lord directs the lot. And they are dying, they are perishing, they know they are, but they're going to perish knowing on whose account. The sovereign Lord directs the lot, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity befallen us? What's your occupation? Where are you from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, How could you do this? This is the voice of the world rebuking the church. How could you do this? They cast Lot, and the Lot falls on Jonah. So much for the whys and the wherefores of their desperate situation. So much for satisfying the curiosity of the doomed. But if you think about it, and I have thought about it, this is the thing that's hard at first to understand. Does it seem incredible to you, as it does to me, that here in the grip of the storm, on the surging deck of this doomed ship, Does it seem strange to you that desperate sailors should take the time and trouble to address the matter of who's responsible for it? Who's to blame for it? We read this and we have to pause and wonder whether it would have occurred to us, if we were there, to hold a lottery. Well, let me once again point out to you that these are pagans. These are hardened men of the sea, these sailors. These are men with rough edges. The image of God may uh, and is, to be sure, within them as men. As sons of Adam, the image of God is within them. But it's an image so tattooed over with sin as to be almost unrecognizable. This is the image of God that is barnacled over with the superstitions of a hundred voyages before them. And these men, these hardened pagan soldiers, they have a worldview too. And quite frankly, this is no ordinary storm they're encountering now. This is extraordinary. This isn't natural. This is supernatural. And then I should also say this too, that they may be pagans, but they are wiser than many a 21st century American, at least in this. First, they know that nothing in this world on land or sea happens by mere random chance. They also know, as the typical American does not know, they know the truth of the matter isn't to be found simply in polling the unenlightened opinion of every single person on board. Opinion polls give us basically an aggregate picture of collective ignorance. 
Opinion polls tend only to give us more darkness, more turbulence, when what we're after is light and peace. We want to know the truth, not what people think. Now, for all their natural superstitions, we should understand that these sailors, these sailors have already done everything they know to do, everything humanly possible to secure the safety of the ship. That is already done. Whoever God may be, and they honestly can't answer that question, at least not yet. Whoever God may be, having done all they can, these pagan sailors realize that their fate is now in his hands, not theirs. Which actually, you know, is an excellent place to come to. It's a good place to be, knowing that my deliverance is not in my hands. I've done everything I can. Now with nothing but nervous energy on their hands, nervous thoughts in their heads as they wait for the end, they inquire among them who might be the final authority on how this all came to be. Certain things are written on the human soul, even the unregenerate human soul. And danger, when it comes, life or death danger tends to knock the barnacles off the soul. It brings the things that are deeply hidden to the surface. We honestly don't know who this God is, but whoever he may be, we know that he's the one running things. So who among us holds the keys of knowledge? Who among us can answer the question of verse 11? Who among us can tell us how to make this stop? I want us to take these next few minutes to consider, first of all, the sailors in their predicament, and then secondly, the solutions they proposed for it, and finally, the salvation purchase. Now, we've already had a look at these men who are now crying out to Jonah to make it stop. They're sailors. And the Hebrew word that is used here for sailors, that's translated sailors, actually means salts. S-A-L-T. So we might translate verse 5 as then the old salts became afraid. And that tells the whole story of just how terrible this was. Because these are experienced men. These are able men. These are practical men. And for all their combined years of experience on the sea, they've never encountered a storm like the one the Lord is now hurling upon them. Never. They're experienced men, these sailors, but they're idolaters too, as they face this predicament. Every man cried to his God. But if their experience is of no help to them at this particular moment, still less are the trinkets and imaginary friends that they call their gods. 
in this their darkest hour, we see these rough men, these sailors, both at their worst and at their best, don't we? Think of the story. They begin crying, each one to his God, and yet by the end of this first chapter, they have all come to a new understanding, fearing Jonah's Lord, worshiping him, and making vows in his name. It's the conversion of the Gentiles. It's the conversion of the Gentiles, beginning. One of the sparks of that conversion of the Gentiles that we see in the Old Testament. At least in the case of some of them, their lives, we can easily believe, begin to take a new direction because a prophet's been among them. A prophet who is followed so hard by him who made the sea and the dry land. Practical men like these sailors are, they take the plain evidence before them. They take it to heart. As colorful as these sailors in their predicament may seem to us, they're not cartoon characters. I want to emphasize that. Don't ever think of them as cartoon characters. These are real men. They are complex men. They are men who learn as they go. They begin by wanting to fix the blame, but that's only with a view finally to fixing the problem. First, they discover by lot cast into the lap the authority who can tell them, and then they demand of him how to make it stop. And then consider this too about these sailors. Pagan though they are, these sailors demonstrate on Jonah's behalf a nobility. They demonstrate a humanity that Jonah himself lacked toward the people of Nineveh. The Hebrew prophets, ready to let a city of 120,000 perish in their sins, while these heathens, who still bear the image of God, broken and battered within them by sin, they do everything possible, everything humanly possible, to spare their fellow sinner's life. Did you notice that as we read? Even as his very presence among them jeopardized their own. He tells them what to do, and they weren't ready to do it. Complex men, confused in their various religions, confounded by the terrifying events that are unfolding around them, and yet they are compassionate to a fault. These are the sailors in their predicament. These are the men now crying out to make it stop. So what are the solutions they proposed? The first solution that comes to our attention here is professionalism. The first solution, uh, first solution to their problem is professionalism. We'll do what sailors have always done. We'll weather this storm just as we've weathered every storm before it. And really, who can help but admire them in that? 
These are men of skill. Their professionalism is such that a passenger might simply board the ship, go down into the sides of the ship, find his cabin, stretch out, sleep, and wake again well on his way to Tarshish. Professionalism, except for the fact that this was no ordinary storm. The limits of all the combined professionalism on board run out in the first five minutes of this storm. So the follow-on solution, the follow-on solution to professionalism is prioritizing. They'll never be able to save everything, so they will save what they can. To save the ship, they throw everything aboard that might capsize her and take her to the bottom. Everything goes overboard. Then, too, they harness the pluralism among them, thinking that certainly among such a diverse crew and passengers who are hailing from all over the known world, certainly someone among them must have cracked the code on who this living and true God is and how they might actually reach him. Every man cried to his God. So over here you have the Greek bosun's mate, his lips forming a prayer to Zeus or one of his um, Olympian cronies. Over there, holding hard to the rail, you see an Egyptian oarsman wishing his territorial gods of the Nile were just a little bit closer to where he is. Over there, clinging to the ropes, you see a Canaanite clutching a little piece of overlaid wood that he draws from his pocket. Had there been a 21st century American among them, you might have found him pulling out his credit card. Ready to pay any price to get him out of this unfolding disaster. But diverse answers, the diverse answers men come up with don't answer the need. Neither professionalism, nor prioritizing, nor pluralism have the power to make it all stop. And beneath it all is a bedrock of pragmatism. Whatever it is that will make it stop, we have to find it and we have to do it. Hence the casting of lots. Hence the hasty interrogation of Jonah. And hence the question of 11. What should we do to you? that the sea might become calm for us. All of our other answers are falling short. Our skills aren't saving us, our sacrifice of the cargo isn't saving us, and our gods don't seem to be helping us any. What must we do to be saved? And throughout the whole ordeal, of course, they've been relying on their own physical prowess. When all else fails, and all else is failing, when all else fails, row. Row harder. Don't stop rowing. Jonah actually tells them the true solution to the predicament, doesn't it? Jonah tells them what it'll take to make it all stop. And still they row. That may be your answer 
Throwing you overboard might be your answer, but it's not our answer. It doesn't agree with our professionalism as sailors. It doesn't agree with our priorities as we throw things overboard, not people. It doesn't agree with our sense of pluralism and diversity and fair play. Never mind that none of those things haven't worked. We'll keep rowing. And the more they row, the more they pursue their own solutions, the more tempestuous the sea. Every wave, a black mountain of water crashing over them. The longer we delay, friends, the longer we delay in ridding ourselves of the genuine, actual offense among us, the closer we slip to our doom. Delay is doom. Delay is death. Delay is disaster. At this point, every fiber of every muscle in every man has turned to useless much. Think of another storm in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the ship on which Paul was being taken to Rome. That storm went for like 14 days. We don't know how long this storm lasted, but it was tempestuous and it was long enough that the energies of these men had run out. They're absolutely spent. There is nothing left within any of them to draw. And friends, it can be this way among sinners whenever a genuine crisis strikes. We'll try everything that we can do to manage it. And if we find that we can't manage it, then we'll try everything we can just to hang on and get through it. But in the last analysis, because our God is holy, because he is a consuming fire, there is no getting of sinners through it. There's no weathering the storm of God's justice. The crisis calls for a victim. If centuries earlier Israel were to succeed in taking the city of Ai and moving victoriously onward toward the fullness of her promised inheritance in Canaan, if that were going to happen, she must surrender the thieving Achan. Achan must die. If in this case the ship is going to be delivered from disaster, she must surrender even the derelict prophet, Jonah, to the sea. In the jaws of the tempest, it's not enough simply to trim the sails or bargain or plead or even pray because sin is a word that very soon is going to end with the letter K. She's going to the bottom. The sinner's one good answer in his catastrophe is that sin must go overboard. Must go overboard. None of the solutions they so vigorously pursued are meeting the need. And so at the cost of his own life, Jonah declares the one thing that he knows will purchase the salvation of the ship. 
Nothing else will do it. For a man's sin, a man must die. What will make it stop, they said. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. And there, friends, is the salvation purchased. The price of redemption is punishment. Someone has to be punished. Now this assertion sounds hard enough in itself to the average man in the street these days. That for sin, someone must be punished. South Texans can get through July and August barely aware of the fact that it gets hot here in the summer thanks to the modern marvel of air conditioning. But it still gets hot. And the patient who's lying on the operating table can get through his surgery perfectly unaware of the surgeon's scalpel thanks to anesthesia. But he's still being cut open. And sinners today can still be unaware of the dreadful danger of our sin and the steep price of our redemption thanks to the anesthesia of so much bad preaching and bad theology pouring from so many pulpits across the land. 2,800 years have passed since this particular storm at sea. 2,800 years And here at the dawn of the 21st century, sin will still kill you. As it was then, so it is now. The wages of sin is death. Sounds hard to the postmodern ear. Sounds hard because it is hard. It's the hard truth. It's the hard fact of the matter. The wages of sin is death. Was it enough in the fullness of time for Jesus, the Son of God, to come into the world teaching us how to amend our ways? Did Jesus come into the world with a checklist of heavenly suggestions as to how we might trim our sails? how we might lighten our loads, what course we might set to find our way out of the fatal hurricane of God's judgment and back, as it were, to the port of Joppa, to safety. Of course he did no such thing. The Lamb of God came into the world to take away the sin of the world. He came in perfect compliance with his Father and with the Holy Spirit to assume the burden and penalty of your sin. And having become the sin bearer, having become sin itself, to take that sin upon him and with him all the way to the bottom of the sea. That's what he came to do. And that's how the nations are going to be saved wherever this gospel is preached and heard and believed.
That's how it's going to happen. Another prophet, besides Jonah, another prophet saw this Savior from afar off, and he said as much. In the 60th chapter, Isaiah writes of the day that the nations come to the brightness of Christ's rising. And there in the 60th chapter of Isaiah, we see those Gentiles coming by land, coming by sea. They come from afar. Some of them, he says, carried in their mother's arms. Why do they come? Gentiles, why do they come? They come to marvel at his grace. They come to worship at his altar. Gentiles, streaming to the God of all grace. Gentiles included in this glorious inheritance of life eternal. His riches poured out for our poverty. His righteousness for our sin. His death volunteered so that we might live. Isaiah writes in that 60th chapter, Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me, says the Lord. And the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel at the unfolding of your eternal decree, the grace of it, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life and spilled his blood, not for ancient Israel only, but for all those that you gave to him from before time was, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, whatever our circumstances, like Abram, you teach us to believe in what you have said, and that is reckoned to us as our righteousness. Thank you for the sacrifice, the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, that we sinners facing peril, the peril of death daily, that we might live at the cost of his life. We pray that you would then hear the thanks that we give to you now through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.